welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in, coming back to the show. First time listeners finding the show, welcome aboard. Always happy to have you. Hope you've had a chance to check out Counterpunch Plus, the brand new subscriber section from Counterpunch. If you were previously a subscriber to the print magazine, well, you already have Counterpunch Plus. But if you did not get that magazine before we retired it and sent it off to the island of misfit magazines well then you can now get counterpunch plus become a subscriber get access to all of this exclusive content that we have including investigative pieces essays uh, book reviews film reviews so much stuff on there i really do recommend it because not only do you support counterpunch but you support independent media in this all all important time um, as we're facing just all of these various threats from every seemingly every direction. Uh, Counterpunch Plus is a great new uh, offer from Counterpunch. Please do go to the website and get that subscription. You can also follow my work on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Eric Dreitzer. Okay, self-promotion out of the way. Let me get my guest on the line. Uh, Camila Escalante is with me to talk about Ecuador, Bolivia, a whole bunch of very important issues. Camilla is a very important journalist that I would recommend you follow. She is with the brand new and up and coming news outlet, Kawasun News. Nope, let me say it again. Kawasun News. I'm sure I got it wrong. We'll try it again, I'm sure, one more time. Camilla Escalante, formerly of Telesur, based out of Ecuador and Bolivia. So much good work from her. Very happy to have you on the show. Camilla, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, uh, Eric, on your show. Thank you so much for all of your great work and for this really interesting news outlet out of Bolivia. We'll talk a little bit about that later on. But before we can talk about your exciting projects, let's talk about what's going on in Ecuador. Um, there's been an election or at least a first round of an election. Um, I'm going to assume that many people listening have not paid any attention to what's going on down there. So let's give a broad overview of the election, what happened, who are the candidates, and what was the outcome of that first round? Uh, so we went into the election uh, in Ecuador with about 16 candidates. And all of those candidates, except for one, represented um, some sort of, um, you know, Somewhere, we're somewhere on the spectrum of the right wing, arguably including the Pachacutic uh, candidate. And um, this is all kind of just uh, a media war on Andres Arauz, who's, of course, the leftist candidate representing the Citizens' Revolution. And we have to say the Citizens' Revolution because they went into this election without, um, well, they have a party, and of course, it's called the the Union for Hope is what it's being called. And this is a completely you know, new construct, of course, because um, the party that uh, the Citizens Revolution, Rafael Correa's party, went into the previous elections in 2017, in which Lenin Moreno won the election, was Alianza País. Alianza País still exists as a party, but he actually just left, um, resigned, or... Uh, left the party a few days ago. Um, it's quite bizarre. The party brought him to power, but of course, the people who stayed were traitors to Rafael Correa because Lenin Moreno went and persecuted uh, the 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 main people of the main leaders of that party. Lenin Moreno persecuted, of course, 
former president Rafael Correa, who's in exile in Brussels, Belgium. He jailed the vice president, the elected vice president, Jorge Glass. Jorge Glass, like Lenin Moreno, were both vice presidents under Rafael Correa, and a whole slew of other people had to uh, run to the Mexican embassy, for example, or leave the country in exile because of the political persecution. So because of that, this um, the largest political force in the country, which we call the Citizens' Revolution, and that's what they're called in the, in the parliament, of course, the Citizens' uh, Revolution um, Bancada, uh, they had to find another party. They were having a difficult time registering a party um, because, of course, the the right wing and the Lenin Moreno regime wanted to make sure that they were barred from running because they knew that they had very um, strong prospects of winning with any candidate at the head of this party. Um, and as well, they had a very difficult time registering the candidate. And it was uh, you know, quite recently, not not too long um, ahead of the elections, that we even knew that um, Andres Arauz would be able to stand. Andres Arauz um, was uh, had a, uh, I guess, an important position under Rafael Correa's administration. He is an economist, and um, he's very young, and is, um, for all intents and purposes, a leftist. Um, however you know, possibly not, um, you know, in the vein of Hugo Chavez, but of course has pronounced himself as in favor of integration, regional integration, and of course against, um, you know, IMF coercion and um, Lenin Moreno's IMF deal. And running against him, who everyone kind of thought would be the second place uh, candidate for the most part was um, Guillermo Lasso. And Guillermo Lasso has run three times for president. He ran in 2017. And that election, um, just like this election, had to go to a second round. Lenin Moreno was not able to get the votes needed to win in the first round. And it was very contentious and actually very... Um, it was a very dramatic election, actually. It's uh, in retrospect, people are kind of thinking that that election was small beans, but actually, uh, Guillermo Lasso's people, which are all you know representing kind of like the upper class, um, were trying to convulse the city of Quito and the country, and they were demanding a recount and they were demanding transparency um, in the second round because Lenin Moreno won by not a very large margin ultimately. So Lasso has had his eye on the presidency. He's back again. And of course, um, he uh, got away with about 19% of the vote in the first round. Arauz received about 31%. And at around 19%, um, some tenths less than um, Guillermo Lasso's, Yaku Perez, who represents the Patacuchi party, which is a, a very important political party, which has a lot of representation in the National Assembly and um, which represents a lot of um, indigenous movement people in the country as well. That's their political project, their political party. And uh, with 16 percent, um, there was a uh, another candidate, um, Javier. What's his name? Well, I can't think of his last name now, but it was a social media candidate who did very well 
um, kind of getting the attention of young people on TikTok. And uh, so that was a surprise as well. But of course, the winner in the end of that first round with 31% of the vote um, in a very wide uh, pool of candidates was Andres Arauz. Let's talk a little bit about Arauz because the the generally accepted uh, interpretation of him is basically not just a protege of uh, Rafael Correa, but potentially his puppet, his proxy, essentially a stand-in or a surrogate for Correa who cannot uh, himself become the president. So uh, talk a little bit about Arauz, the perception of Arauz, perception maybe versus reality, and uh, some of the ways in which Arauz and uh, his political party is being targeted both inside the country and maybe by some actors from outside the country as well. Yeah, these are the same talking points that, you know, the right has to fall back on. And they say this in every country that, you know, that the new candidate represents just a protege, that someone who was hand appointed. Um, You know, of course, Rafael Correa is supposed to be all powerful and he points to things and he makes things happen, um, you know, just by sitting in his desk in Brussels. Um, But uh, I mean, this this has to be repeated over and over because there's no other way to, uh, you know, kind of make their, their theory and attacks work. They have to say that, you know, obviously Rafael Correa is built up to be a tyrant, an authoritarian, um, that, you know, it was a dictatorship of 10 years. And they say this in every country. They said this about, um, you know, Evo Morales and who he was going to supposedly appoint as the new uh, candidate for the movement towards socialism in Bolivia, even before we knew it was going to be Luis Arce. Of course, funny enough, Luis Arce and uh, and Andres Arauz are both uh, very important economists. And, um, you know, I... There, there was a range of people in both cases that that could have been that could have been chosen to be the candidate. But at the end of the day, this is someone who is representing a very wide movement uh, that again represents the largest uh, the largest political movement in the in the country and which has wide support in very important areas of the country, diverse areas of the country, the major cities, the coastal areas, and even. Um, you know, some of the some of these areas where Yaku Perez received support in this first round, uh, some of that support may be going to um, Andres Arauz because those people will refuse to support a right wing candidate uh, for president um, if their candidate does not make it to the second round. So I think um, I think a lot of people, you know, at first within the Citizens Revolution or supporters of in the country thought it was kind of an interesting pick because he's not, you know, one of the celebrities, let's say, of, of uh, you know, the Correistas. But of the Correistas, a lot of people, of course, are still living in exile. They're still unable to return to the country. And so that would have made it difficult for them to run as well. So this should be seen as some sort of a disadvantage to the party or to the political movement that they they weren't able to run those people. Obviously, Rafael Correa can no longer run for president, um, and neither can anyone who's you know living in Mexico or in an embassy. Uh, so, um, but uh, by no means is it um, you know a candidate that was um, you know inevitably picked by Rafael Correa himself. 
And what about the allegations that Arauz has received uh, illicit funding from abroad, that uh, some of the news that has come out about Arauz that may or may not be uh, fake news emanating from either Colombia, the United States, or some combination of various other nefarious actors. Can you speak a little bit about the use of fake news, disinformation, and or these accusations against Arauz? Yeah, I mean, these accusations um, or these attempts to try to link a leftist anywhere in the region, which would be, you know, all of Latin America to, um, you know, to narco trafficking or to a guerrilla organization um, are just, you know, extremely forced. And, you know, it's just a repeat formula that we're seeing over and over in every single country. It exists here in Bolivia. Um, Bolivia is a landlocked country in the middle of South America, which, you know, has particular neighbors, but um, largely has a lot of, you know, Amazon and forests and is quite far away from Colombia. And they try to say the same things about links uh, of Colombian guerrillas to, uh, you know, politicians here um, and try to make, a, you know, assertions about narco trafficking, which, you know, even by the standards of the USDEA don't exist here um, on any level, um, you know, compared to Peru or, or Colombia itself. So they were trying to say that based on a story that came out right before the elections, a story that was written by um, a reporter of Revista Semana, Semana Magazine in Colombia, that that they had information that um, that a, a commander of the ELN, now deceased, had given a loan to um, Andres Arauz. And this is, of course, they, their timeline for this was before um, Andres Arauz was even uh, confirmed as a candidate. And, you know, it just follows the same line that Lenin Moreno has been pushing for years. I mean, essentially since the beginning of his presidency, that uh, that that these that the leftists of the country of uh, the people who were of Alianza País, um, the Correistas have links to to guerrillas in Colombia. But of course, he was under that same administration. If there was any sort of corruption at all be, or links to any organizations, um, I guess he would have been a part of it, wouldn't he? But um, yeah, it, it's just the, you know, it's just like a little bit ridiculous and it ties in with like the xenophobia and racism that we see. Like there's a lot of people in Venezuela who, when they're denouncing uh, Nicolas Maduro and saying that they don't, um, that they don't, uh, recognize him as president anymore. Uh, they say that he's a Colombian citizen. Similarly, in Ecuador, people try to um, offend people by saying that they're Colombians to try to say that they're part of some other group. Um, and it's just, you know, it obviously appeals to a certain, uh, you know, sector of the population who is drawn to those sorts of xenophobic attacks on people who've had to move to Ecuador because of, you know, displacement and, you know, really horrible things having to do with the conflict in Colombia and just trying to um, appeal to those fears. Can you take a few minutes to tell us a little bit about Yaku Perez and uh, the very close 
finish in the uh, in the first round of the election, his allegations of fraud, uh, any evidence that's been brought forward and where that all stands now? Yeah. Um, so it was I, I think it was a bit of a surprise um, for a lot of people because Yaku Perez probably wasn't scoring as high in those voter intention surveys. But of course, as is the case in a lot of places, those surveys are not, um, you know, very accurate in certain parts of the country. They have difficulty um, conducting their work or they deliberately don't go to certain areas um, to receive that information. And so, you know, what, what we saw um, with him receiving almost as many votes as, as Guillermo Lasso received is, you know, he just received a massive block vote from the, from the grassroots of the organization he's a part of. And so he's a part of, you know, he, he represents the Pachacuti move, uh, political party, um, which at, at its base is the Konaye um, indigenous movement. And these people, um, you know, held their own internal process. This was very contentious. Two other candidates within Konaye who represent uh, much more of the grassroots uh, had much, um, I guess they had much more of, uh, you know, a chance of winning according to their own, uh, their own internal polling, their own um, indicators. Um, but for a number of different reasons, they were kind of like strong armed by the political arm of their movement. And uh, Yaku Perez became the candidate. So um, I think I think despite that, a lot of people saw that Yaku Perez was not their preferred candidate from Konaye um, or fr- from the bases representing them. He he is he was uh, the prefect of Asy, a, a province of of Ecuador. So he is a politician. He do- does know how to how to swoon people, but he wasn't the, the preferred candidate. But despite that, I think people, you know, were very, um, that people are militants in the same way that they are here in Bolivia. Once again, not, it's, you know, your, your preferred, uh, you know, leader doesn't always become the candidate, but people still believe in their political project and they would always rather support you know, their least favorite within their own movement than support someone else, especially someone of the right wing or someone that they've had a rough relationship with, in this case, Correismo. And so um, so it was a bit of a surprise if we're following the polling, but it's not a surprise that, you know, this is a large uh, social movement, uh, the indigenous movement in Ecuador, and that they voted together as a bloc. And if you look at the places in which he won, um, or where he did well, I mean, he did extremely well. I mean, he won, you know, between, let's say, 40 to 50% of the vote in certain areas. And this is between all of the candidates. So, um, yeah, he received that kind of block vote. And so I do think that even they were a little bit surprised, they, meaning uh, his campaign, his party, were that surprised uh, that that they would they would fare so well. And then they realized that there was something worth fighting for there. But as the votes continued to come in, and of course we saw 
that the final votes were coming from the province of Guayas, which is a large province, and it is the province with the city of Guayaquil, which is the second city of Ecuador, um, which has been in the news for the last year, of course. Guayaquil was the epicenter of the COVID-19 outbreak, and the, it is a coastal province, and all coastal provinces have essentially always favored Correismo, and um, although Lasso had have, has traditionally had a lot of support, there is a large uh, you know, following of the right wing uh, there in Guayaquil, um, they probably lost a great deal of support because of the mishandling of the coronavirus outbreak in the country. And so ultimately, those votes came in very late. And, you know, I think the the parties themselves, the candidates themselves were able to uh, make predictions based on which areas of the countries remain to be counted in the vast majority of which were in Guayas. And they knew that um, the biggest winner out of those final votes, those final tally sheets to be counted would be Andres Arauz and that uh, to a lesser extent, um, Guillermo Lasso would be uh, receiving a big push as well to throw him over that threshold and pass um, Yaku and, of course, uh, secure his place in the second round. And Yaku knew this, knew this himself. And so at that point, he began denouncing that, um, that this was going to happen, that he had been in the lead through the count, you know, uh, as the tally sheets were being counted through all those hours and days. And he knew that uh, Guillermo Lasso would surpass him. But uh, geographically, it makes sense. This is the same sort of scenario in some ways, as we saw in Bolivia, that the rural vote comes in. I mean, it's a little different, but there it's the case that the rural vote comes in last and the rural vote supports the mass. And so they would always, um, you know, just about always get a spike at the end. And in this case, the two front runners were the two who are proceeding to the next round did get their spike. Yaku Perez did not get his spike. He lost and, you know, to the point where he was trailing by 30,000 points. Um, which in some ways may seem close, may seem far, but um, he's been trying to produce a number of um, tally sheets that uh, demonstrate some sort of irregularities. But the problem with that is, you know, for one, he's uh, producing tally sheets that don't have anything to do with the presidential race. You know, they're tally sheets having to do with the, the other races, the National Assembly. And um, and that the you know as far as the CNE has permitted uh, the revision of some of them that the numbers haven't changed drastically. And if you could just take a minute and explain for us the um, the moves that were made by the attorney general, some of the other high ranking government officials recently that caused an uproar and potentially you know raising accusations of meddling in the election results. Yeah, well, like I said, that Semana Santa article came out quite recently, just before the elections, and it was just some person, uh, a reporter, and, you know, she might have gotten this uh, information directly from the U.S. State Department. She might have, you know, people might have, someone might have, it might have been strategically placed for her to encounter. I'm not really sure. Obviously, it was disproven um, in one way or another, uh, but the, the, Attorney General in Ecuador uh, solicited that uh, evidence that supposedly uh, 
the the reporter had and 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 the I'm trying to English things, the attorney general in in Colombia had now possession of, and of course the guy jumped on a uh, you know presidential plane, I believe, and took a visit. This uh, attorney general of Colombia visited Quito um, to hand deliver those documents um, on a USB drive, um, and so with with such urgency, and so. Of course, the criticisms of that have been that, you know, all sorts of, um, well, first of all, wild crimes take place in Colombia. There's just a very um, high rate of massacres that, uh, that take place there. There's an ongoing conflict there. Um, there's a lot of, you know, killings by paramilitaries. And um, there's also been... Uh, some crimes that involved Ecuador, for example, three journalists in Ecuador, I believe in 2018, were killed um, by um, by a irregular group that was Colombian um, by the Ecuadorian Colombian border, um, and so things like that have happened. And at no point did the uh, Ecuadorian state go to such lengths to protect its own citizens and gather and receive that, um, you know, the information and evidence that they had in Colombia and collaborate on this level to try to ensure that there was justice for those victims and families. And so it's kind of absurd that this was able to move so quickly. um, And it's just so obvious. And this is, of course, at the same time when the media is just uh, repeating these you know, these tales about, uh, about cooperation between, between guerrillas and, and, uh, this party. And I mean, the thing is, is that the, I mean, beyond how just ridiculous it would be in any shape or form, you know, and I said, again, he is, he is a social Democrat. He's not, um, you know, someone who would have any sort of, it's inconceivable that he would even have, um, relations with people like that is, is all, it's like, I don't know how else to say it, but this is someone who literally um, collaborated with, uh, as a fellow, a senior fellow at the Center for Economic and Policy Research in Washington. This is someone who's spent years of his life in, in the U.S. and the global north, um, and he really just, uh, you know, it's very difficult to draw out a map by which this would be even possible for him to receive such funding. Uh, but didn't so, they try? Didn't they try to seize data? I'm sorry. Didn't they try to seize data from the electoral commission and actually get their hands on the raw uh, vote tallies? Yeah. So the uh, both the um, attorney general and the comptroller uh, wanted to intervene uh, with the. TSC or the CNE, sorry, getting my countries confused here, but the National Electoral Council and um, and do their own, do their conduct their own review. Of course, um, even the the board members of the National Electoral Council themselves have has said that they can only actually audit the system when the entire process is complete. That is after the second round is complete, and so. Um, so they weren't able to advance on that, but um, at the end of the day, they were going off of just the accusations by the third place candidate, um, and 
you know, with, with very little to go off of. And it's just very um, unprecedented that they would move so quickly uh, based on just, just claims and no real evidence. So, and not follow any type of a process. It seemed like the president of the CNE had lost control of the situation, was kind of just leaving things open, uh, you know, just changing, you know, going in one direction and the other um, every couple of hours. She, of course, was hand appointed by the Lenin Moreno regime and was, a, you know, one of the people who was favored to head the CNE by the, you know, the, the oligarchy of the country and is also from Pachacutic, the party of Yaku Perez. With the time that we have remaining, I want to focus on what seems to be one of the primary issues for the left to uh, engage with when it comes to not just Ecuador, but maybe Latin America, broadly speaking, and that is the uh, divide, maybe real, maybe imagined, maybe some combination of the two, between uh, indigenous and environmental concerns on the one hand and economic development in the form of energy, mining, extractivist technology and, and, and development model uh, on the other. And so the first question is, is this divide uh, really as sharp as we might read in some of the uh, in some of the Western press? Uh, number one, and then number two, uh, the extent to which this divide is real. What does it tell us about the uh, precarious situation uh, on the left in Latin America? It's an absolutely um, false divide, which does not exist. Uh, it's completely uh, forged, um, and you know that benefits uh, the likes of the people on the right wing and the people who are trying to steal power away from the most popular forces of the left in the continent. Just two days ago was the anniversary of the killing of Berta Caceres in um, in Honduras, and if you'll see, the people who have honored her life and memory and who have uh, committed to seeking justice for Berta Caceres have been indigenous people, have been environmentalists, have been leftists, and people associated with ALBA, people associated with Venezuela and Bolivia and regional integration and the social movements that make up ALBA. And so it is absolutely unbelievable that now, um, it's five years later, that people are trying to forge the story about a division between one kind of a left and another kind of left. It's just not true. There are um, conferences and continental gatherings and meetings of indigenous peoples, of peoples um, uh, and of social movements where all of these people that we're talking about come together. And it is no different in Ecuador, nor is it different in Bolivia. And um, at, the, at the end of the day, we just saw on November 11th, 2020 here in Bolivia, in Chimore at the airport, when Evo made his final return home, he came on stage, sitting behind, beside him on either side of him, were two the most important leaders of Conaye, which are Jaime Vargas and Leonidas Iza and Andres Arauz, and he brought them together. And of course, they came, uh, you know, Andres Arauz came because he was in the country um, as part of as a guest for the inauguration of Luis Arce a couple of days prior, um, the Conaya delegation also came to La Paz 
prior to the events with Evo, and they they attended Luis Arce inauguration as well. But they sat together at the same table after uh, after they joined Evo on stage, you know, in a celebration uh, that took place in the evening with music and dance and food. And uh, you know, they've said that it it just is what it was. Evo just had an event, and that they are allies and friends and comrades of Evo, and it was nothing more than that. But of course, we know through the actions that have been taken by Konaya as an organization and by the grassroots and those anti-IMF protests that took place, the October uprising that was largely led by the indigenous movement, but of course was a multi-sector um, uprising that included students and uh you know, union workers from city from cities and a lot of other organizations, but um, was led by the indigenous movement. We saw what their actions were. We saw what they said, what their talking points were, what their demands were. And these are people who, at the bases and within you know certain um, leaders, are fundamentally leftists, and that they don't see um, they don't have so different of an ideology as the Korea, the Rafael Korea left. And so this is a completely invented uh, thing because at one point or another, there were some clashes uh, that are, you know, that need to be addressed between Rafael Korea and his administration and Konaye, and that they denounced him uh, for some of the things that took place under his management of the country, where, you know, whereby um, there were some offenses to some of the uh, indigenous peoples on their territories, uh, you know, very specific things that happened. Um, however, that doesn't change that fundamentally, the things that people are demanding, for example, that uh, Leonidas, Leonidas and some of the uh, local authorities are demanding uh, that they be able to purchase their own uh, Sputnik V vaccines from Russia and holding a, a meeting with the Russian embassy because they because they're tired of the corruption within the right wing regime of Lenin Moreno and they see that this uh, problem that of this complete failure to deal with this public health crisis uh, by this government is just going to continue under Guillermo Lasso and I think that there are people among their ranks who believe that this could continue as well under Yaku Perez and that they, when they are given an option between right and left, um, that they know that they will have to, uh, or that it would be perhaps uh, at least more uh, preferable among a lot of the bases to support a leftist candidate and try to fight and work with, with Andres Arauz and his administration. One of the reasons why this issue is so at the center, uh, certainly for me, in my thinking about this issue and in thinking about Latin America generally, is that uh, those of us who follow U.S. imperialism and the machinations of U.S. imperialism know that uh, environmental issues are one of the uh, critical, uh, you know, uh, fulcrums, uh, you know, choke points at which U.S. soft power is able to exert its influence. We've seen this in various parts in Central America. We've seen it in South America. We've seen in other 
parts of the world as well. Sometimes it comes in the form of NGOs and, and grants. Sometimes it comes in the form of individuals who are involved in those movements. The, maybe sometimes it's the National Endowment for Democracy or whatever it may be. But the question of a divide on the left between environmental concerns and indigenous concerns versus economic development, real or manufactured, is absolutely uh, one of the directions from which imperialism seems to be targeting the Latin American left. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, one of the things that that we have to realize is that the right in Latin America and the forces of neoliberalism have only be a, been able to come to power in recent years through coups and persecution and through infiltration. And in Ecuador, they returned to power, the right returned to power uh, by infiltrating the Alianza País party, which was the party of Rafael Correa, which Lenin Moreno destroyed. And in the case of Pachacuti, this person who came to power uh, as the candidate uh, with links to the U.S. embassy, um, the that he, he also, you know, sort of had to hijack the entire process um, to be able to, you know, show up in, on the ballot in the elections. So I think it's it's really important to to, to realize that it just that this has been a complete ma- manipulation of the process from the outset, and that. Um, you know, this process is going to, you know, there's going to be somewhat of people uh, predict a rupture in the coming days. Uh, The election, the second round of the election is going to take place on April 11th. But uh, tomorrow, uh, which is Friday, March 5th, the Cotopaxi movement, the indigenous and campesino movement of Cotopaxi, which is the movement that um, is led by Leonidas Isa Salazar, uh, will be holding a meeting with its bases and they will be uh, concretely deciding what they want to do going forward to the March 10th meeting of Conaye's in-person uh, ampliado or mass meeting. And so in that meeting, the number, the most important item will be deciding uh, how they're going to uh, proceed collectively uh, going into the second round. And they've already decided that this individual who has acted as an individual in his own interests, this is the leaders of Konaye and a lot of the bases themselves who are saying this, that this person has acted on their own, um, ha- is not making it to the second round, regardless of what claims that they have made about fraud or demand for transparency, that it's just over and done with. And it is a two-man race between Lasso, the rightist candidate, and Andres Arauz. And they will have to decide whether they want to. Uh, there, are, there are more than two options. They have also considered, you know, whether they're just going to cast a null vote and, you know, go to the polls, but not support one or the other candidate. That is also a possibility. But they have said time and time again, the leaders of the movement have said that they will never in any circumstances support the right. And I think that, you know, support for the right, they might come to the decision that casting a null or blank vote is support for the right. And they may try to push for 
some sort of support to arouse. That's going to be very tricky to try to um, articulate to the bases and to the Pajakuti structure because they've spent a, a bit of time uh, trying to distinguish themselves uh, officially from Rafael Correa's people. But I do think that, um, that, that, that their inclination right now from what it seems like is that they do not want to risk having another four years of Lenin Moreno in the form of Guillermo Lasso. In just a couple of minutes, and I'm going to ask you to be as brief as you can, can you give us an update on the situation of COVID in Ecuador? As you already noted, COVID, uh, uh, Ecuador was one of the global hotspots in the early early part of this pandemic uh, in the city of Guayaquil. So what is the situation with COVID now? Um, what is the vaccine rollout? How does the country look? Well, in... You know, during the height of the first wave, Lenin Moreno's administration uh, actually let go a bunch of uh, uh, doctors uh, from the public health system. And they have been one of the countries which has been slowest to, uh, to get their hands on vaccines. That, of course, has to do with the fact that there's this, um, you know, there's this reactionary push against cooperation with Russia and China, two of the only uh, providers of vaccines that probably would have been able to reach uh, Ecuador in a reasonable you know, time frame. And so they've been very slow about uh, getting their hands on vaccines. Then there was the, the whole, you know, what they're calling corruption scandal with um, his latest minister of health, who resigned on Friday officially and then boarded a plane on Saturday morning at 6 a.m. directly to Miami, arriving at 10 a.m. And he has fled justice. He knew that um, people were so angry that, you know, it was he was going to have to uh, probably face prison time. So he departed. And so essentially in the small amount of time that they were able to get their hands on some vaccines, um, you know, friends and family and, you know, whoever else, whatever partners were prioritized and they weren't getting to the people who needed it most. Um, and, you know, this is, of course, following all the images of bodies laying out in the streets and people just dying outside of hospitals all across Guayaquil, but also in other areas of the country. I don't know uh, what the figures are now, because, of course, I'm kind of in another world right now, which is Bolivia. But uh, people are really angry, and this works um, to the advantage of Andres Arauz, who is you know, holding talks with Argentina and finding other ways of securing vaccines. He has his own ways of getting vaccines. He's been uh, you know, focusing on that sort of diplomacy you know, before even becoming president and is trying to ensure those things. And so I think people are going to really consider that as well when they when they return to the polls in April. Final question, since we're just about out of time, I just would ask you to give us an update on the situation in Bolivia. That's where you are currently. Uh, several months ago, we did a whole episode about everything that went down in Bolivia. Of course, everything that happened from the coup on forward, and then of course, Arce's uh, uh, electoral 
dominance, his landslide victory. So uh, ever since then, I guess it's been, what are we talking now, four months since then. What has happened since then? What are the uh, significant things that we should be looking for in terms of the near term, medium term, long term for Bolivia? Uh, Well, this Sunday in Bolivia, we're going to regional and local elections. That's the elections for governor, uh, mayors and counselors. It's really important, of course, because this is the um, opposition's opportunity to try to uh, gain control of some regions of the country. And it's also the masses' opportunity to consolidate power in a more concrete way now that they won, you know, overwhelmingly with 55% voting for uh, Lucho Arce while also um, winning majorities in both houses on October 18th. So it's been extremely contentious um, inside the country. When we post online, um, myself, um, my colleagues, uh, and on Kaushashwa News, when we post about, um, you know, some of these things that are going on with uh, someone being summoned over a charge, you know, everyone's, or someone from the Janine Añez regime, everyone in the exterior, uh, you know, the international community, their response is always, why is that person still free? Why are they walking around free? Why are they not in jail? Why have the people... Um, who committed all these crimes, the massacres, and uh, persecuted people within Bolivia during the coup, why have they not seen jail time? And that is exactly, this is exactly what the conversation is on the ground in Bolivia. Everybody says this every day. That is like online, on Facebook pages. Um, If you go to a rally, um, people are very angry. People are very much pushing the government. They are trying to figure out if the problem is the, uh, the, they say the minister of government, which is like the interior minister, if he's being too soft. Of course, in the case of the Jean Añez regime, the interior minister was Arturo Murillo. He was persecuting people widely. People were in jail for the whole of the coup, only to be released afterwards. Um, So people are wondering if that guy's being too soft, they're going after the departmental prosecutors and, um, and other, and other officials and saying, why aren't these people being persecuted? So this is a huge topic within the country. People want to see, um, they want to see their officials, um, you know, coming down on these people because in this election that's taking place on Sunday, some of the people key people from the Janine Añez regime, including her herself, is ru- are running as candidate. She's running as governor for the department of Beni, where she's from. And uh, of course, uh, Luis Fernando Camacho is running for governor of Santa Cruz. And other people are running. Uh, one, of her, uh, one of her ministers is running for the mayor of La Paz. He's being um, accused of sexual harassment of women. Uh, just people just think that they're scum. But at the same time, they happen to have very large followings in their localities. So they're a really popular person in their city or town or uh, or in the department. In the case of Jeanine Añez in the Department of Beni, uh, they have, you know, very high electoral prospects. So this is, you know, you know, a lot of people are it's a very heated time, actually. And it's kind of, you know, weird because we report in English for a foreign audience, but it's, you know, 
it's kind of hard to hype up an election that really is so internal. But apart from that, we're also seeing new attempts at destabilization. So there, um, the doctors who work um, at private clinics have gone on strike in the height of the COVID-19 outbreak here. And so they're refusing to work because these people, unlike the vast majority of working class Bolivians who have to go to work every single day and stand outside and sell something or make something, or drive a taxi, or whatever it is, doctors receive salaries no matter what, and they're refusing to work. Um, their public, um, their public hospital or public clinic uh, side of their work, whereas they're still probably engaging in their um, for-profit uh, medical services, of course. And so, while the government is trying to strengthen the public health system. This is something that Evo Morales did during the whole of his term. Um, Lucho Arce is having to further that because of course we're dealing with the coronavirus. And so they're you know, obviously just bringing in all the, the vaccines. This will be free of charge. Um, everybody is qualified to receive one. No one will be discriminated against. Uh, but the doctors want to keep things as private as possible. They want to be able to um, profit off of these services. Um, and so they're, they're staging strikes, um, you know, right as we're approaching elections. Um, and so there's a really hostile um, environment here. And of course, Evo Morales had to deal with um, these same doctors. It's not all doctors. Uh, it's a particular, uh, you know, doctor um, organizations uh, that are, you know, that were in opposition to Evo Morales and they're using the power that they have in the country to to strike against this government as well. Um, they, they also, of course, these people are against the return of the Cuban doctors, which had to leave when the dictatorship came to power. They're trying to prevent them from returning, um, of course, because the Cuban doctors would be, um, you know, a part of the public health system. And it would, again, make it more difficult for people to profit um, off of off of health services. Um, of course, uh, just another thing that happened that was really noteworthy was that uh, Lucho Arce actually and the Central Bank, Bank of Bolivia did uh, return that $350 million loan to the IMF. Um, and it did cost um, some millions of dollars to the Bolivian state but not nearly as much as it would have, of course, had they held on to it and, you know, spent it the way uh, Janine Añez would have wanted them to. And so that, of course, shows, you know, the kind of administration um, and economic policy that um, that Arce is running. People had their doubts about Lucho Arce and they, you know, they kind of thought that he was, you know, not as not as revolutionary of a, of a leader as Evo Morales, but of course he's proving by his actions that he's following the same course. Final question. Uh, can you just in like two or two or three minutes, just tell us a little bit about Kalsashwan news, uh, the genesis of this news project and what you hope to achieve? So Kasashma News, we launched on May 6th of last year, which is during the coup. And so we had always wanted, um, you know, well, when I see we, I mean, um, you know, myself and my colleague, Ali Vargas, and some of our uh, friends and colleagues who are kind of, kind of bilingual as well. We wanted to do a media project uh, for a while, kind of just like highlighting 
the internal struggles of Bolivia, news in Bolivia for the English speaking world. Um, and just kind of like showing, you know, highlighting largely the mass um, and like the different social movements that are represented within this political party. Um, and so then, you know, the coup took place and this was, you know, we just had to launch it like in the middle of everything that was going on. And so um, we are based in the Tropico of Cochabamba in a small rural town. It's really just the jungle, but um, we are part of a radio station, which is Radio Casashuancoca, which is the official station of the six federations. The six federations is a massive uh, rural agricultural workers union uh, there in the Tropico um, I mean, the Tropico is just this large um, region of the Department of Cochabamba, where, you know, known for uh, traditional coca production, as well as um, agriculture. And so um, that's where we're based. Um, so it's kind of like, in some ways, we are in an English, an English version, an English service um, of Radio Kasashwan. Coca, but it's a little bit different, of course, because, you know, we're for, we're kind of outward facing and the radio station deals with a lot of issues that are very much local. And so I think, you know, we just started extremely small, but, you know, we were really passionate about reporting on Bolivia um, before the coup took place and we were using every a platform, you know, at our disposal to do so. And so at the time I was, um, you know, a presenter and um, producer of our uh, newscast at Telester English and, um, you know, every, every other position I've done there. And I always tried to kind of insert the news coverage of Bolivia into our newscast and everything I did. And that was, you know, very successful. And had I not done that, obviously there would have been a whole lot less coverage. And I was able to interview Ollie on, on our programs and um, when we were both there. And uh, so, yeah, this is just like an, op- this has been an opportunity for us to spotlight Bolivia and the struggles here. And of course the resistance against the coup. Now that the Bolivian people were able to defeat the coup in such a short period of time, through the ballot box, but obviously through uh, their popular mobilization and the national strikes and blockades that took place in July, August. Um, Now we're, I mean, this is just, we have not reached the launch yet. We feel like all of that was kind of like the, um, the, what is it? Like the gestation period. Uh, we, we, We will be launching actually in the coming months, a much larger project. And we will have a website and a whole lot of other features Um, And of course, we are seeking a lot of support and funding for that. But regardless of what kind of support we have, this is something that has always been grassroots and, you know, initiative based and that we'll continue to do whether or not we have, you know, the means to do as much as we would like to do. And of course, because of what happened and the circumstances in Bolivia, we were always focused on Bolivia, but we have um, a lot of knowledge and experience reporting in other places, myself in Venezuela and Cuba. And of course, uh, we want to kind of, you know, draw a larger picture of the scenario in our region. And that includes all of these integrational projects, that includes ALBA, that includes all of these, uh, you know, different things that Evo Morales is kind of at the forefront of, uh, which is retaking these projects that had kind of, uh, you know, kind of quieted down 
uh, that weren't being as articulated anymore as they were under Hugo Chavez. So Hugo Chavez not only, um, you know, was one of the 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 minds behind um, all of these integrational projects, including, uh, you know, Salag uh, or Salak Unasur and, you know, Telesur, et cetera. But he also was bringing together social movements of our continent under the banner of Alba. And this is something that uh, Evo Morales and uh, our, the secretary general of Alba, who is also uh, Bolivian right now is uh, Sasha uh, Laurenti. Um, and of course, um, you know, all of the Venezuelans who are um, a big part of ALBA are trying to relaunch now is bringing together social movements once again as we, you know, proceed to uh, overcome uh, COVID-19. We'll be able to have, you know, in-person meetings again and, you know, just, you know, try and begin to organize continentally on a continental level once again. This is a huge, um, hugely important time for our continent. Uh, these, you know, forces of of the left were coming together in a very strong way uh, during this period of the, you know, let's say like uh, early 2000s um, with Evo and Fidel and Chavez uh, and Christina and others at the forefront. And this is starting to take place now. And we're seeing, you know, a leftist wave on a political level in governments coming to power, but also um, on the social movement level. And that's something we want to cover. Well, we're very happy to have another news source of this kind, one that can give these kind of insights. I would just direct everybody to Kausashwan News. That's on Twitter at Kausashwan News. I'm going to spell it K-A-W-S-A-C-H-U-N. Kausashwan News on Twitter. We'll be looking forward to the website, the launch of the new project, etc. You should follow Camilla as well on Twitter. Camilla Escalante is at Prensa Camilla and at Camilla Press. Uh, Camilla is a face we know from Telesur, and you've heard her here with excellent analysis of the situation in Ecuador and in Bolivia. Camilla, thanks for coming and talking to us today. Thank you so much for having me. And of course, Kasasha News is also on Facebook. And like I said, we'll be launching our website quite soon, but we have a YouTube as well. And most of our stuff will be found on Twitter. That's great. Thank you so much, listeners. Thank you so much for your continued support, for supporting Counterpunch. Get your Counterpunch Plus subscriptions, and we will talk again real soon.